the hell is that? That was me going. Yeah, I know. But what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> that was me clicking on an icon. That was me clicking a button. I come with my own sound effects too. I guess. Sorry. Uh, where am I saving this desktop? <laughs> yeah, this is this. So, you know, thank God none of this is making it into the show. Um, this does not you, qualify as a bit. You're going <laughs> every couple of minutes. Unless, sound it's it's his best bit. Unless you follow it up with a Yosemite Sam voice. <laughs> you great horny toads. For barren varmint. <laughs> for barren spataro. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 109 and I am Captain Dunsel. I am joined this time around by my good friends Paul Spitzaro. Hello. And Gullah Bill Robinson. That's Dr. Bill Robinson. Dr. Bill Robinson, that's right. Kildare. (laughs) How's it going, fellas? It's going. All right. Uh, Pretty good now that the sky's not falling. (laughs) You'll have to explain that one. Uh, well, chicken little now or later? Yeah, well, no. Since I fell for everything on April Fool's Day. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Especially uh, Disney is buying Star Trek by Scott Gardner, George Takai as a Jedi in the next Star Wars movie. Uh, what else did I fall for? Disney I think there was like Superman. a Doctor Who. There's some stuff I fell for, and then you were the one that told me. Back when, to the Future it, Four. Did you fall for that one? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw that and I started to have some a little suspicions, and then I asked you straight up, "Hey, w- what's going on with this Star Trek Disney thing?" And you're like, "Are you near a calendar?" And I'm thinking, "What does that have to do with it? Am I near a calendar?" <laughs> and I, I, I like looked around my desk. I'm like, "Well, no. Well, yeah, I got one on the computer. Why?" And you're like, "Did you look at the date?" And I'm like, uh, "It's April." Oh, so. <laughs> hee-haw, hee-haw. <laughs> like in the cartoons when the guy's head turns into the big uh, donkey head that, that was me if it makes you feel any better i had a i had a moment of going oh when i saw the back to the future 4 one and i was like wait 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 april fool yeah that's right <laughs> but for just a split second i was all excited and i was like how the hell is that gonna work and i was like oh yeah that's right no it's not gonna work well, the Star Wars and Characters guys had a pretty good one. I don't know if you heard their uh, April Fools. Uh, well, I probably spoiled it then for you. They had an episode like they were ending all their podcasts. Oh, and, no. uh, then they ha- had a recording of where they they didn't say who, but they had some type of star was going to come onto the podcast. And basically two of the guys were going to dump the other two. And they got in this big argument and everything. And then finally at the end, you know, like, oh, OK, April Fools. So I was like, this can't be real. You know, of course, this was after I talked with you. So now I knew it was a trick. 
Because <clears throat> if not, I would have, you know, gone in the other room, laid in the closet in the fetal position, rocking <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> oh, we're Star Wars a character. <laughs> well, I really got nothing for an opener other than the fact that uh, I finally got around to checking out um, Marvel the Untold Story, and now I'm a good probably, I don't know, a third of the way or so into it, something like that. I'm digging it, man. What a great book. It, it's it really been suggested is. to me by so many people, and I finally decided, you know, I, I, gotta, I gotta check this out, so I've been reading that, and I'm really digging it. I've got that, but I haven't read it yet, so I'll have to check it out. Yeah, you gotta you gotta read it, man. It's, it's good stuff. It's very good stuff. It's got a good balance, too, between hitting on the history and then touching on the actual storylines that were going on so that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it allows you to kind of follow exactly when in the history these things are happening. And uh, just really, it's it's funny because I, I've got stalled as I was reading it and um, I haven't picked it up again. But it's, it's such a fast read that I should have finished it in, you know, two days. And yet for some reason it's just taking me so much longer than it should. Yeah, I've been blowing right through it, and I'm I'm not usually much of a quick reader, but it's I, I like the style it's written in. It's very very engaging, and uh, it's it's lending a lot of insight into things that I thought that I knew, and it and it it's one of those things that really you know helps illustrate to you you know the things you may not know or or you know that you thought you knew, but you know here's the real story or the real background kind of thing, and I think that's really cool. I'm, I'm getting a kick out of it. The negative of it is you know at least. In that day, in that era, when it, when a lot of that stuff was going on, you know, in the 70s when I started collecting, you know, you, you kind of bought into the Stanley hype of, you know, this happy, fun bullpen. And, you know, it, it kind of gets, lets the genie out of the bottle and all of a sudden you find out, you know, not everybody was so happy and, you know, their jobs were in at risk a lot of times and people got fired and people put into positions with their back against the wall and quit. And, uh... You know, it's just not as happy as you would hope. Yeah, that that part of it does bug me, but it was one of those things where I, I kind of suspected that going into it. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. It it, it would have been nice to find out that no, you know, it was exactly like you know we'd always been told it was. You know, it was one big happy, fun, you know, rollicky, silly place. You know, where everybody got along and turned out these awesome classic you know funny books that we'd all grown up on and enjoyed and to find out that no it was a lot of bickering and fighting and you know backstabbing and constantly you know being laid off or outright fired and then rehired a couple of you know no stability that sort of that's kind of the point i'm up to right now is um you know, where Stan had 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 a really, really well, what he called the toughest thing he had to do, where he basically had to fire everybody. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, you know, I can't. What would that be like? You know, because the way they describe it in the book is, uh, you know, that he knew these people. You know, they weren't just coworkers or colleagues; they were friends. You know, he went to their houses, he knew their wives, he knew their children. You know, that sort of thing. So it was very, very personal to him. They weren't just numbers or faceless employees they were you know his an extension of his own family and here he had to basically you know sack all of them and it's like wow you know what would that be like to have to go through something like that how horrible you know you just gave me an inspiration for a uh a stan lee parody song when you said <laughs> stan lee and the 70s 
who is the man who fires <laughs> everyone in the bullpen? Stan, Stan, shut your mouth. <laughs> is that a bit? And we're out. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> Drop the mic. What, what did I tell you about bits? Sorry, Paul. <laughs> well, but that's all I got. What do you guys got? Anything? Or you want to dig right into this? Uh, if anybody's, I don't know if this will be out before Free Comic Book Day. If anybody's in the Port Ritchie area, uh, Yancey Street Comics is having its 10th anniversary. Uh, Billy Tucci will be there. Ron Garney, Chuck Dixon, Maury Harlewall, Don Hillsman II, Greg Land, and a bunch of others. Oh, Mark Texiera will be there. Um, there's that a, was the one. That's that was, it. That was the one. Mark Texiera. That was the one. That was the equation. Oh, sorry. The Star Trek reference there. Just uh, uh, sadly, I think this is not going to get posted until after Free Comic Book Day. Uh, I guess I'm day late and a dollar short as usual. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out the timing of it, and I think this will be a well, week, we a week after Free Comic Book Day. Damn it. Damn it, Jim. <laughs> oh, well. Can you tell I had a Mountain Dew before we came on? <laughs> can tell something's up. You're, you're becoming energy drink guy. Oh, Ener- no. Energy drink Bill. That could be his I, I, identity. I, I can't handle two. I can't handle two two co-hosts hopped up on something. No, no, no. No energy drinks for me. <laughs> well, since no, you I have... Got, huh? I, I got nothing else. I'm good. Well, since you have all this energy, Bill, why don't you go ahead and uh, and dig into... Oh, wait. We're, are we doing emails? We got two pieces of email. Mm-hmm. From guess who? <gasps> not from not spam. Message for you, son. Jason Trenna. How are you, Jason? <laughs> so the first one reads: Spider-Man 101 was interesting, and yes, Morbius was called a living vampire and still is, I believe. Also, does Peter really need a girlfriend when he has six arms? Well, as as I said then, you know. If you can't please a girlfriend with six arms, you can't please her ever. But that's just that's just my take on it. Also, why doesn't Peter ever try to get some help from Reed Richards on removing powers or fixing himself, fixing his giving himself four more arms? At least as a second opinion on if either serum would work. Yeah, that's that's a good question. But it seems like every scientist in the Marvel universe. Whenever they come up with anything, you know, of course you just drink it. There's no reason to test it or, you know, see see how it is, you know, see what it'll do. You know, what could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. So I so I turn into a lizard every once in a while. What's the big deal? I'm a freaking vampire. Yeah, it's, I mean, and even in that particular book, there's the parallel because Morbius does the same thing. He's trying to cure his blood disease, and he turns himself into the vampire. Uh, let's see. And on sins of the past, I'd still rather go with my theory of those twins existing because Deadpool set up the younger version of his friend with the nickname of Weasel on a date with Gwen. And well, Weasel came home drunk as a skunk, so he won't remember anything. I have no memory of that, but Jason's usually good for at least one reference that, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that escapes me. No, that, that, that was because Scott mentioned... I believe you brought up that, or was it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, because Gwen Stacy was off having 
doing the horizontal hokey pokey with uh, Norman Osborn later. <sighs> I think that's where he where he's mentioning that he'd rather be where he'd rather have uh, Weasel be the father of the twins. Yeah, yeah. That was in the episode you guys did with Chris. One of you guys brought that up to Chris and asked him if he was aware of that storyline, and, and he said no. I'm only peripherally aware of it myself. I've I've never read it, but I I can't imagine I would dig on that story. Mm. I'm I'm not big on on retcons of that sort. That sounds like I don't know. It sounds kind of. Like it's not in good taste to me, but I don't know. not good taste. It, it totally takes the character and turns her on her ear. Now I know, you know, Gwen Stacy as portrayed in the, uh, you know, back in the '60s and in the '70s was too good to be true. She was this angel, uh, you know, and and it's you know nobody is as angelic as they tried to portray her. But then to turn around and present her as you know cheating on Peter with Norman Osborn, it's just to me that's just stupid. Why don't you go back to your home on Whore Island? <laughs> really? <laughs> All right, so Jason goes on. As for Aquaman, that's an interesting story you picked. I mean, it's a crime drama with Aquaman thrust into it. Definitely a unique concept. And goes some crazy places after that. As for the $6 million man, well, that one is kind of just weird. And an advert for the toys. Before G.I. Joe, a real American hero, and the Transformers got their own comics, only not usually, only not usually as weird as the Six Million Dollar Man comic. Usually, still keep up the diving in the bins, and I'll be there to listen. That's the end of Jason's first message. I wish I had been part of that episode because I have that issue of the Six Million Dollar Man. I haven't read it since I was a kid, but I love. Isn't it Joe Staten art in that one? Yes. I love the art in that issue. What, what did you think of the art in it, uh, Bill? At to- so, well, it was a mixed bag for me. Sometimes there was some that was really good, and, and others, the way the uh, oh, what, Mr. Land, the, the guy that kills uh, the doctor that creates the little miniature, the way they drew him was really weird sometimes, and some of the faces he made, you know, I, I think we brought it up, he looked like a weird, like... Chester, you know, Chester, the, the molester guy, <laughs> especially when he's with the little girl in the uh, in the alley, like hey, pretty girl, hey, nice, you know, just. Uh... <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what Joe Staten was thinking as he drew it. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it was all right. Has a fantastic cover on it by uh, Neil Adams, too. I always like that. Yeah, that was that was our whole whole big thing because uh, Chris thought he had a Neil Adams cover, and then we got to my book and we zoomed in, and I was like, "Oh, look, this is the Neil Adams cover. Cool." There's another one I've got. I can't remember if it's the magazine size. I, I think it is. That's a Neil Adams Six Million Dollar Man uh, cover, where he's uh, he's dressed in his astronaut outfit and he's fighting like a mountain lion or something, and it, that's really cool. <laughs> in a spacesuit. Yeah, it's like you know, it's, it's like a silvery, like a Mercury era uh, astronaut suit. And what a mountain! Hmm? What a mountain lion be doing in space? Uh, no, well, it's it, at it's, this hour. It, it's it's on Earth, or you know, it's like out in the forest or something. So I don't know if he like cra- I can't remember. I don't know that I've ever actually read it. Come to think of it, but perhaps uh, it it's is the a- forest moon of Endor. 
<laughs> that <laughs> would be awesome. all together, baby. It's a space mountain line. That would be awesome. I wanted to ask you, I, I think uh, Jason actually brought up a very interesting question. Um, when did Spider-Man uh, ever really start going to the Fantastic Four for much of anything? I mean, I know that he goes to them in, it's isn't it ASM number one where he goes there for a job? Yeah, well, that's exactly yeah. it. He, he goes there thinking he's going to get paid, and when he finds out he's not going to, he leaves. But beyond that, I can't remember because you know, I, I would think it, it's kind of like. Well, he does go to Reed when he's got the alien sim. Uh, you know, when he's got right. Venom. See, um, I was thinking that would be like way on there's down the be road. Stuff before that. Oh, I mean, I know that they they had you know they would cross paths and have adventures, but I I would see it as almost like a like a superhero like tiers of superheroes. You know what I mean? Like like superhero social circles, and you know the Fantastic Four, at least Reed and Sue, are kind of like. You know, they're like the, the, the Prince Charles and, and Princess Diana of superheroes. You know, the royalty of superheroes. So, you know, Spider-Man's kind of the... The piss boy. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, for one thing, he's a vigilante most of the time. You know, hunted by the police and that sort of thing. Not really accepted. So, you know, they don't exactly move in the same social circles, that sort of thing. So I, I would think that that might be part of it right there is that with, with Mr. Fantastic, there's a certain sense of celebrity, you know, he's the smartest guy in the world. You know, it's, it's like you or I, you know, having an ailment and wanting to go talk to Stephen Hawking, you know, it ain't going to happen, you know? So I, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? I get a little annoyed sometimes that, you know, Reed Richards is a scientist. So every possible discipline he's an expert in, right? You know, isn't Reed Richards a physicist, which kind of does, cover a little bit of everything but they also treat him as if he's you know an md and you know a biologist and you know realistically you you do something where you have four extra arms i would think hank pym is probably the guy you need to go see because i think he is a biologist well hank pym was made in uh some of the later avengers books the bendis books wasn't he made the scientist supreme actually i, I didn't mean hank pym I, I said hank pym but i meant oh. hank, i meant hank mccoy Right, oh. yeah. Who, in traditional McCoy, Marvel the guy fashion, that turned himself also <laughs> came up with a formula and drank it and mutated himself. Yeah, this so, will shrink my feet. So, so oh. maybe, maybe that's reason enough to not go to him. <laughs> 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 hey, man, how come you didn't come to me? Look in the mirror, pal. I, I think, far? to a certain degree, I think the Marvel Universe is guilty of doing that with just about any scientist that sticks around long enough in the Marvel universe at some point, if they, if they're, they are, if they're a continuing character or supporting character, whatever that that's around long enough, it's like somewhere along the line, somebody just forgets what the discipline was and they just become kind of a, you know, Jack of all trades scientists that, you know, they, they may have started out as a chemist, but now they're building, you know, artificial, men or you know it's, it's mm -hmm. that sort of thing and that that drives me a little bit nuts too it's like no you know you should have one that specializes in this one that specializes in that instead of just scientist means you know i know everything about everything well no it really doesn't mean that well i, I kind of liked that in the avengers movie because I, I don't remember the exact situation but when they bring tony stark on board 
And they, and they say, you know, when did you become an expert in this? He's like, 20 minutes ago. I just read the book. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's just that he's so intelligent that all he has to do is read, you know, somebody else's data. And now he's, you know, he's exceeded that person's abilities already. Right. I, I, I kind of like that play on it. But just to walk in and, you know, off the top of their head, they know everything about everything. It's like, you know, it's stretching things a little. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Jason's got a second email. You guys want me to just do it, or one of you want to take it? It's all you, buddy. Uh, I'm just, I am the Jason guy today. <laughs> now, his second, his second email, the way it's titled, I personally think is a challenge to Bill. Because it says, not spam, back to the bins, and for the love of God, do not sing the spam song. Uh, I believe you two were the ones singing the spam song. <laughs> I believe I have never sung <laughs> on this show, and I believe I probably never will. Other than to spam, other than to Maybe. hum the girl from Ipanema now and again. <laughs> I want to know what he's got against the spam song. Not that I'm going to play it, but I was actually thinking the other day. That maybe you know you you were telling we've been talking about the sound bits thing. If we can ever get that worked out to where we can do actual live sound drops on the show, that I think Jason should have his own sound drop when we read one of his letters, and it should be I don't like spam from from the spam song. <laughs> that that could be that that wouldn't be bad at all. <laughs> oh, actually, I think I did. I did sing. I said, yes, I said, did. I said spam a lot. Yeah, I did. I would spam a lot. Oh, oh, I did it again. Did what? Just that there. Oh, spam a lot. Oh, no, I did it again. Oh, <laughs> tis a silly place. <laughs> so this one goes on to say, hey, guys, on the topic of the spotlight show, I don't mind you guys doing one every so often. Oh, thank you, Jason. <laughs> I'm glad we have your permission. <laughs> well, excuse me. <laughs> and on email episodes, I only really care if my emails come up, to be honest. At least he's completely upfront about it, because I'm the same way. If you're not reading my letter, I don't, I, I don't care. See, I, I like it when, you know, back when I would write into the show and you and Mike would read my letters or whatever and comment on the things that I said. I liked that. But I... I don't know. I was always interested in hearing if somebody else made a good point. But that's just me. I'm crazy that way. <laughs> On the AWC, I assume that's Avengers West Coast, mm -hmm. I wondered why Craven was listed as a suck villain as the battle between Tigra and Craven is the earliest issue of the book I have and remembered Scott can't stand the character. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I apologize if we called Craven a suck character, because what we really should have said was that he's a shit character. <laughs> I can't stand Craven the Hunter. The best thing he ever did was splatter his brains all over a wall, because I really detested Craven. Come on, he's just plain friggin' silly, dude. He does wear a very macho-looking pair of slippers. <laughs> Come on now, Scott. You know, you need full disclosure here. You know, you need to tell everybody you're a member of PETA. And so, uh, you don't like him wearing fur. <laughs> so, Scott, I just think that you got a question here, dude. I, I'm just I just want to say that my my major problem, my major beef with him is he looks like 
if the village people needed a jungle member that that he's their guy. You know what I'm saying? He but just... I, th- I see. I think that goes right to the question that Jason's asking you here. So, Scott, what do you think of the fact Marvel has made Craven have a small army of kids? Apparently, the women folk, they love them some Craven. <sighs> so maybe, maybe hard up women out there in the world. That's right. all I got. You know, you say. get the lion's mane with the lion vest on and a nice pair of ballet slippers, a couple pair of leopard pants. Why what, what more do you need? Maybe that's the secret, man. Maybe I've been doing it wrong all these years. Maybe I needed to wear a, a, a giant lion head around my shoulders all my life. I've done it wrong what, with wearing pants and shirts all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> As for Graviton, you read, his, you read his Thunderbolts appearances? The clashes that team had with him were extremely interesting and fun, and he was never played off as being lame, and beating him was always difficult for them, and not just running in and punching him in the face. Maybe they threw him in the sun. I mean, Graviton is basically, he's basically Magneto with just a slightly different gig. I mean, Magneto controls all metal. Graviton controls friggin' gravity, you know? <laughs> I mean, that should make him an A-list villain. I mean, he should be... Nobody should be able to get near him. Yeah, and... and you know, there there have been some really good appearances. I don't know the ones that he's specifically referring to. They may be later on down the road, you know, past what I've read of uh, of the Thunderbolts. But that's one of those books I intend to get caught up on. It's just you know kind of low priority at at the moment. But I would like to get caught up on it eventually. But yeah, I like Graviton. He, I think he's one of those, you know, those villains with great potential that just has seldom been fully utilized, you know what I mean? But occasionally they've hit it. Occasionally, yeah. Because there was one, God, I couldn't, I want to say it was around like maybe like the 150s or the 170s or something of the original Avengers with a Gil Kane cover where he has like, he's like floating on like an outcropping of rock or something over a city and he's about to dash one of the Avengers to the ground. I think it's Iron Man or somebody. And that that was a good story. I think that went on for a couple of issues, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I, I liked that. I thought that was good. Isn't that the one when Thor comes to the rescue later, late in the? Uh, is that is that Graviton? I'd have words with you, or is that Ultron that he has words with? I don't recall. So that's not that. Count Nefaria. He does that with Count Nefaria. I, know. I think he yeah, does it with Thor. everybody to pump. Yeah, his that could be. <laughs> Well, you know, Thor, I mean, and a lot of those, that era of Avengers, Thor was kind of the Superman characters. Like, you know, they, they would come in with the, with the core team and they'd battle the supervillain. But if they ever got really seriously over their heads, then the, the big, I wouldn't say it was a cliche, but it became a little bit formulaic after a while where Thor would, you know, appear on like the last page of the, you know, the cliffhanger two part or whatever as, oh, Thor's arrived. Now this guy's going to get his ass whooped. And they, they did do that a couple of times. I know Count Nefario is probably the biggest you know, of that era. But I like that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. So Jason goes on to say, as for Namor, for some reason I imagine Aqu- Aquaman and Namor behind Scott when he does that, and Arthur is laughing as he seems to always get the flack for being lame. And Namor punches him and then grabs Scott by the back of the shirt, before seeing how far Scott can go 
like he was throwing a long bomb. <laughs> okay, it's kind of a wacky image there, but all right. As for John Byrne theme ep of bins, sure. Given the body of work he's got, there are plenty of things to go into. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now, my thought, you know, we, we've talked about how we pick our books and all, and I have actively tried to avoid, to some extent, burn books and Neil Adams books, because if I didn't, I'd pick them probably half the time. Right. So that that's the only reason is I feel like Byrne and Neil Adams, more than any other creators, get plenty of coverage on Back to the Bins. So that's that's probably my biggest reason for not necessarily wanting to do a theme episode of him, although I go back and forth on it. It's funny you say that because I do that with characters. I, I try a lot of times to avoid Superman and Batman because I think we've done a lot of episodes, both of this show and you know the other two True Freak shows about Superman and Batman. So a lot of times I'll, I'll bypass books, you know, specifically with them, just because I, I don't want to be heavy on on one or two characters. But, no, uh, what, what makes you any, any better than DC Comics? Because the other <laughs> issue that they come out with is either Superman or Batman. Yeah, no kidding. And every Marvel one is either Wolverine or Spider-Man. This is very true. Mm-hmm. As for Death's Head, geez, I just wanted you to read the limited series covering the original one with the framing device of the second one learning about all this. Or the What If, where Death's Head, Death Head lived written by his creator, who also said it was a cathartic experience as someone else killed his creation, leading to the second version. And as we said in the uh, episode where we talked about that, I'm just not familiar with Death's Head. I really don't know anything about it. So I can't say I'm opposed to it, but I just don't know it. Yeah, I, I don't I don't recall any of us being down on the idea or anything. I mean, for, for me... Uh... I just I don't I'm you know come to think of it, I'm not sure I was even on that episode I, yeah, I think yeah, I was that was the that was the email episode oh okay but yeah. uh, I mean I I know in in broad strokes and vague terms who the character is but I don't think I have like any of like say like his solo stuff if I, if I have anything with him it's where he popped up in like FF or something like that but. I mean, I'll do some digging if I've got something with him like that. What if you're talking about or something? Then you know, I'll, I'll try. But uh, you know, I don't think any of us were down on it. Like, either. no, we don't want to do that. We just don't know who the hell he is. Uh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one where I said I was sitting in the bathroom so long trying to figure it out. My legs went numb. <laughs> That's right. I remember. <laughs> he he's an interesting character, but it's just a lot to wrap your head around. You know, you just got to keep your your focus. Right. So. I'm actually going to skip over one sentence here. Uh, uh, just really quick, Jason mentions uh, Mike Bailey's wife being in an accident and wishes her a speedy recovery, which we all do. But I don't want to go into any details on that. Right. Uh, and then he goes on, and to put things on a happier note, there is one comic limited series not quite 10 years old I think would be awesome to review on Back to the Bins, Dream War. I'm not familiar with Dream War. Do you guys know that one? Mm, I don't uh, think so. Give me, give me more. Come a few bars. Dream War. <laughs> dream. Okay. Yes. I. Okay. Yeah. I do remember this now. I was told there'd be uh, no singing. Uh, well, they lied. No math. There would be no math, but there will be singing. <laughs> the two are connected. There'll be no singing math. <laughs> 
<laughs> There'll be no math about singing or singing about math. <laughs> okay, and Jason goes on. <laughs> These, <laughs> the Silver Age Justice League, the Mauve Wolfman Perez Teen Titans, the JSA plus Starman, a.k.a. Starboy of the Legion, and classic Legion of Superheroes versus and then teaming up with the Heroes of the Wildstorm verse. Well, I... Of those things, I'm kind of up for most of them. I have no problem with it. I have actively avoided any JSA books because I'm still hoping that Scott and Mike will revive Tales of the JSA one day. So that's the only reason I haven't put a JSA book up yet. Okay. Are you done? Yeah, well, there's one. <laughs> that, was just, that was my point. I wasn't sure if you guys were going to have any comment on it. No comment. <laughs> And then send these... all complaints about Tales uh, hiatus to Michael Bailey at. <laughs> and then DC villains are unleashed with the Sun Eater as the biggest threat to face all the combined heroes, with Superman being well Superman, and the Wildstorm heroes aren't used to having someone with such optimism and hope for the future. I can honestly say that Dream War is one of my favorite comics limited series oh, he ever. Was describing, oh, okay. He was describing what Dream War was. So it Super has all H those Justice League, the Perez-Wolfman Teen Titans, the JSA of the Starman era, and the classic Legion of Superheroes with the Wildstorm heroes. Okay. What the hell was this? Well, he Maybe said it's it not 10 years 10 ago. Years ago. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been out of comics that long, so how how did I miss this? I'm gonna have to look this up because I have no idea what the hell he's talking about, That's... and this sounds like something that I would have wet my pants over. Be easy now, big boy. I'm glad we're in the same room. Dream War, DC Wilds. Oh, wait a minute, I. I don't know. No, I do. I don't know what this is. A six-issue comic book limited series by writer Keith Giffen. Uh, that that could be tricky ground right there. Drawn by Lee Garbett. I have no idea who that is. It's a crossover between the DC and Wildstorm universe. Hmm. I'll tell you what, Jason, you have me intrigued. I will. I will have to check into this because it's six issues. I've got three in my books. I'm looking at here. Strictly judging a book by its kind of, of course, the cover I'm looking at. I'm looking at Wikipedia, by the way, so I don't know how reliable any of this shit is. But looking at Wikipedia, the cover to number one is by Mike McCone, who I think is uh, a minor deity in, in comics artwork. So um, it's beautiful, but I have no idea. I, how the hell did that? Yeah, it's probably slipped by me because it, it has to do with Wildstorm. And I probably just looked at it and said, I don't give a shit about that. So. But if if it has all the awesome you're saying it does, then yeah, I'm gonna have to check into that. It has something to do with. Uh... Oh, he inked. It says Andy Lanning inks. At least uh, this is on the cover to number one. I had no idea that Andy Lanning did anything but write. I didn't know he was an inker too. That's I've, I've heard that that he was an artist. Huh. But I have never actually seen his artwork. There is precious little about any of this. It just says DC characters arrive in the Wildstorm universe and soon get into major brawls. After some fatalities on both sides come to realize something has gone horribly wrong, their minds are being played with. That's it. And that it's been collected as a trade paperback. It doesn't say 
shit about it beyond that. It doesn't say anything about the Legion or the JSA or Starman or any of that. So, hmm. This one has uh, has managed to slide completely under my radar. So, yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll check into that. The, yeah, I probably if I was aware of this at all, which I really don't think I was, but I'm looking at the cover of this. If I have seen this cover before, I have forgotten that I saw it. But if I did see it, I probably saw it and immediately thought of that. What was the name of that book? JLA Wildcats, I think. Yeah, it came out right, you know during the the Morrison era of JLA. And at that time, I was really, really into JLA and was buying like everything that was coming out. And that book was one that was kind of the beginning of the turning point for me where I was like, you know, I think JLA is kind of reaching an oversaturation point at that point. Because I read that book and it's not like I didn't enjoy it, but I was just complete. I didn't know who anybody was. I didn't get the point of the story. I thought the art was a little wonky. And yeah. Yeah, I didn't remember I, I I do remember when that came out, but I uh, I think I passed on it when it came out because I wasn't really familiar with all the characters. And again, like you said, I don't think that was a point where JLA was getting oversaturated. That they seemed to have not only their main series, but like another mini series coming out every week. Right. So it was like you know what I'm going to pass on that. And that was I guess back then comics were probably a buck ninety nine each. And even then Something I was thinking like that, yeah. you know it's getting too expensive that. You know, I, I I spend whatever twenty twenty five dollars a week, and I spend fifteen minutes reading them, and they're all done. <laughs> you know, it just didn't seem worth it at the time. So I that was when I started cutting back again. Yeah, it's funny looking back on that now, and I haven't thought about this in a long, long time. But looking back on that now, that was uh, really that was uh, a big sign of things to come in comics, because they 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 struck gold or struck oil, whatever with. Uh, with JLA and then they just milked the living hell out of it. They, you know, like you say, they had a const constantly had a, a one shot or a mini or spinoff or something coming out. It seemed like every week and yeah, it, it mm-hmm. quickly, uh, I, I thought it, you know, as it always does, I think, I think it just diluted the whole phenom by just overselling it. You know, yeah. there was just too much of it out there. And a lot of what they put out wasn't very good. In the beginning, you know, there was some good stuff that they put out. But after a while, it just got to a point of, wow, I'm not digging this as much as I was because so much, you know, there was so much of it and so much of it was crap, you know? Yeah, it, and it, even even if it's all decent, it just gets too hard to follow it all. Mm-hmm. You know, it just becomes, it starts to be too much volume. And they do it routinely now. You know, Marvel does it with the X-Men and the Avengers, and right. Wolverine being in every book and Spider-Man being in every book. And, you know, DC does it with Batman and Superman. I mean, how many different Batman series are coming out right now? Or Batman Family series are coming right. out? Or even, even the Green Lantern now. You got the Green Lantern. You got Red Lantern. You got Green Lantern Corp. Uh, you got uh, the New Guardians. Uh, and then there's a, I think there's another book. There's a Team 7 or something like that. Right. It's, it's just too much. Especially but, at three, at you know two ninety nine or three ninety nine a pop. Well, there's there's that, but also I, I think sometimes, especially with something like JLA at that time, I think a lot of the secret to, of the success of that book was, you know, at least for me, was that it was a novelty. 
you know, after so many years of Superman being unavailable and, and off the table in relation to the Justice League, suddenly not only was he a member of the team, now everybody was, you know, all the big, you know, the heavy hitters were back. The classic seven were back and all together on one team after many, many years of it not being that way. And so now you weren't suffering through a bunch of B, C, and Z list characters. You really had the core characters that you really wanted to see, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, all those guys. It was the super friends ramped up. And, uh, and that was a lot of the novelty of that is that it was a novelty. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was something that we'd all wanted to see, but by constantly, you know, pumping out too much stuff and, and constantly imitating and, you know, just oversaturation, it, 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 it wore off very quickly. But as I sit here and you, and you, you know, you take off the names and you mention the super friends, I cannot help. Anytime anybody mentions the Super Friends now, in my head I hear Ted Knight saying, "Meanwhile, in the halls of justice." <laughs> oh yeah, I did love me that show though. So, are we going to do any books today? Yeah, <laughs> I sure. think we should let Bill go first since he got shorted last episode. Yeah, I think Bill should do his book. <laughs> go ahead, Bill. You sound a little bitter. <laughs> not at all. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what message I'm trying to send there. I just just being a wise ass. All right, I have got the indie. I'm I'm independent. Yeah, me too. I'm whatever you said. Independent. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? Uh, from This was from last month, but we ran a little long or short or however you want to look at it. So uh, I am doing Dark Horse Comics, Star Wars, Tag, and Bink are dead. And we're going to be covering number one. Uh, this is cover price of two ninety nine. This book came out in October of 2001. Uh, cover is by... Lucas Marangon? Marangon. Marangon. Okay, sounds good. Colors are Michelle Madsen. Uh, inside, script is by Kevin Rubio. Pencils, Lucas Marangon. Again. Inks, Howard M. Shum. Colors, Michelle Madsen. And letters is Steve Dutro. And uh, we have a, a scroll, you know, the uh, the typical Star Wars scroll in the opening page. It's episode 4.1, Tag and Bink are dead. It is a great period it is a period of great strife and tor- turmoil at Dark Horse Comics with episode 2 still months away. Editors struggle to meet the demand for new Star Wars comics brought on by a ravenous and unforgiving fan base. Dark Horse editor Dave Land in a move that he now regrets commissions the ever late always procrastinating Kevin Rubio to concoct a two-part comedic story about two young rebel officers set during the time of episode four. Even now, as you read this, Kevin struggles to meet the deadline for the next book, and artist Lucas Maragdon Maragdon, is slowly going insane because of the impossible visuals Kevin asked for and the limited time that is left to draw the book. Turn the page and let the hilarious adventures commence. And at, at the bottom of the scroll, you can see... It's like the bottom of the page is still being colored in with space. There's a, there's a hand there with a black Sharpie 
and uh, a thought bubble that says darn, and then there's a coffee stain on the on the page as well. Oh, you so, know what? I thought that I thought that was actually him drawing the Death Star. I didn't realize it was a coffee stain. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I thought it was a coffee stain. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I just I just mis misinterpreted it. <laughs> well, well, we all interpret things differently. So, uh, jumping right right into the book, uh, we have two two rebel soldiers bump into C-3PO as the TAN of Four is about to be boarded. These are our uh, so-called heroes, Tag and Bink. They opine about their chances in the upcoming battle being slim and none, and slim just made the jump to hyperspace. Uh, Rebel leader, who looks like is being played by George C. Scott as General Patton, uh, tells the men to soldier on and asks, who wants to be a hero as uh, Tag and Bink run the other way? (laughs) Later, while protecting a rather dark area of the ship, C-3PO scares the bejesus out of them while asking about R2-D2. In the distance behind them, we see a woman in a white dress doing something to an R2 unit. Tag and Bink ask the droid to keep its voice down and move along, only to turn and be apprehended by a group of stormtroopers. The two grumble back and forth about their situation until the troopers escorting them pipe pipe in and basically tell them that they were chumps for buying the Rebellion's bull and that the Empire is great, minus all the freedoms you lose. But, but hey, the medical and dental are, are good, and that's what's important. Uh, Tag and Bink, not sure uh, which, or T- Tag or Bink, not sure which, points out that uh, there is one thing that the troopers do not have, good peripheral vision. As one of the troopers trips on a m- mouse droid, and they end up kicking the other in the face. Um, afterward, they, uh, they steal their uniforms to, to hide from the other stormtroopers. Unfortunately, they ordered back they ordered back to the uh, Star Destroyer Devastator, which had um, picked up the Tantum Four. Later, they arrive at the Death Star, and one of them says that they've got a bad feeling about this. Well, we've never heard that in a Star Wars book before. Uh, once on board, they are amazed at the size of the station and the fact that there isn't any signage for the bathrooms. During their tour, they meet uh, now. I think that this is, uh, judging by what he says, I believe this is, is it Colonel Tag or General Tag? It's I, This is a guy, I believe, that Vader chokes out. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, fans of Marvel Star Wars would know that uh, his brother is uh, the blind Baron um, in some of the Carmine Infantino work, which uh, we just want to say that, that we do, mi- do miss Mr. Infantino because he had just passed on recently. Definitely. But back to the book. Tag and Bink complain about the sight issues with the helmets to um, Colonel Tag, or General Tag, or whoever. And that uh, which one of them is rewarded with a smart-ass smack up to the side of the head because he can't see him standing next to him. Uh, having enough, they decide that they have to get off of the, off of the station. On the way, they try to, um, while they're trying to leave, they pass uh, that familiar girl in the white dress from the Tan of Four thinking it odd. Uh, they then sneak to the hangar bay and decide to steal some of the TIE fighters and head to Alderaan. Alderaan and her short-range fighter. They have no idea where it could be, why the chances are... Oh, wait, it's right outside the window. Guesses, I guess their chances were pretty good, and, and no, I won't sing Johnny Mathis' chances are here, like everybody thought I was about to. On the way to the planet, a humming noise is heard in their ships, which is kind of odd considering they're... In space, so how would you hear it? The Death Star humming up. Anyway, and 
Alderaan is gone in a massive explosion. So they're flying around in the debris, trying to figure out what to do. And then uh, shortly later, a uh, a rather familiar YT-1300 freighter that we're familiar with flies in and starts jamming the comms. And in the confusion, they mistakenly return to the Death Star instead of going away from it. And the freighter follows and in turn is captured by the Imperials. Upon, re- upon returning, they're rewarded as heroes and then later duck out from their party and try to remain anonymous by marching around a station where they're then told to guard an area and a suspicious-looking old man is completely missed by the two as he deactivates the main power coupling for the tractor beam, which in turn gets them confined to quarters for allowing it to happen, even though Vader and Tarkin wanted it to happen all along. So now they try to escape again in TIE fighter pilot outfits, only to end up as Vader's wingman, wingmen during their final rebel attack on the Death Star to which they meet their end in the explosion of the station. Or have they? Well, at least they finally found the bathroom sign as it floats nearby them in space, and we're left with next issue, Bink and Tag live. <laughs> and that's a synopsis. I, and I just noticed that bathroom sign, or what looks to be a bathroom sign, I just noticed that last night. I mean, not last night, this night. I guess that would be yesterday, so that could be last night. For that. <laughs> Time travel again? Yeah. Yeah, considering this won't be out for like five weeks, it's really, really time travel. <laughs> so, on the opening page, did everybody catch the Douglas Adams reference in the first, uh, the first panel? Yes. I don't know, it was pretty subtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's also a, a, a Spaceballs reference there, kind of. And the fact that they have a bumper sticker on the back of the uh, of Destroyer. the Star Destroyer, honk, yeah, honk if you love evil, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which in Spaceballs it was what uh, we break for nobody, I think. Now I'm just wondering if you just picked this up blindly, you weren't aware of say uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. What would you make of that planet? Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't... Excuse me. Yeah, it would just be something weird, like, what the heck is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. you'd just think it was, a, you know, like a like a joke planet or something. Which, a lot of this seems seems to me to have some, some Douglas Adams humor in it. Oh, definitely. I'm, probably my favorite thing in the whole, the whole book is when they finally make it to the Death Star, <laughs> and they're walking... You know, around that, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Like a, it's like a platform, balcony, whatever, mm-hmm. where uh, Han and and uh, Luke dressed as stormtroopers take Chewie, and they walk by a turbo lift that, you know, straddling it is this giant big boy icon with the <laughs> upraised Bob's, Bob's hamburger. Big, Bob's big boy. I love that. I, I just, I saw that and I was like, that's very funny. I really get a kick out of that. Do you see the guy on the lower level in his pajamas? Yeah. <laughs> is that Arthur? Hmm. I don't know. He, he looks might... like he has a towel. He, he, yeah, no, I didn't think of that. He might have a towel. That could be Arthur Dent. Hmm. That's very funny. And he is on a station that destroys planets, and the Vogons destroy planets. This is very true. Did, uh, did you notice the Dark Horse symbol on the backside of the Death Star? Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, there's tons of of little visual gags and, and things in this. I really like it. And the art is deceptive because on the surface, it, it appears very kind of light, fluffy, cartoony humor style. But when you really get to paying attention to it, especially the uh, the ships. All the ships look the, awesome. The, the Death Star interiors and everything. It's actually highly detailed and really, really nice. I love the shot of the TIE fighter bay and all mm. the ties all lined up ready, you know, for deployment. That's really fantastic. Really mm-hmm. nice stuff. And this is fun because it's, uh, in a, in a comedic way, it's doing kind of like what, what, uh, what's their names? Jack and Rose do in Titanic where, you know, through the series of the story, you know, they kind of explore the entire ship a similar thing is done here. You know, we actually explore, you know, kind of the backstory and, and a lot of the, the Death Star and things by following these two idiots on their little <laughs> misadventure. It's a lot of fun. You know, you go from, you know, from the from the elevator to the TIE fighter room, you know, to the, the uh, tractor beam and the trench and everything following and them around. And they're the two guys that have the conversation while Ben's disabling the tractor beam. Right. Have yes. you seen a new BT-16? <laughs> you know what? what's going on? Oh, maybe it's another drill. <laughs> it's funny because this actually um, uh, solved a, a long-standing mystery for me. Oh, yeah, what they actually said. What I, they yeah. said, because I've never understood the very last thing um, the two troopers say, because they have their little conversation and then Ben makes that little hand gesture, and one of the troopers says, what was that? And the other one says, ah, it's nothing. And the next thing he said, I've never been able to understand what the hell was he saying. And according to this, he says, top gassing. Oh, yeah. No, I, don't worry about it. I've never understood that. And I've seen mm. Star Wars a million times, but I've never understood that line. What? So I looked this up today, and it's funny because I, I was sitting on the couch with my wife. We were watching something on TV and eating dinner, and, uh, and I was reading this. And so I stopped and I put the book down and I got out my iPad and I type in top gassing. And she just happened to pick that particular moment <laughs> to look over to see what I was doing on the iPad. And she's like, the hell are you looking at? What is top gassing? I said, that's why I'm looking it up. I don't know what the hell it is either. So where did you but, even hear that? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, because then it's funny because, you know, they're like, wait a minute. What are you doing? Tag stop. You're not even a real trooper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I had heard about Tag and Bink, but I had never read it. So that was that was why I, I I was just again trying to look for a book, something I hadn't read before, and this was this was perfect. I, 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 I it was it was hilarious. All the inside gags and 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 how they work these two idiots into the whole saga. Yeah, they and they keep doing it throughout the the series and. Uh... Basically anything that you looked at in the in the in the movies and you said, "Boy, that stormtrooper had to be an idiot because he let this go by." It turns out that that was either Tag or Bing. It's them. <laughs> yeah, because they they keep smacking their heads, boom, boom, on everything. That's very. Funny. So I, I I love the way they tie it in with the whole series. <laughs> I had. Uh... I had a lot of fun reading it. I had a couple of minor quibbles, but for the most part, it, it came down to, I mean, it's their, their nitpicks, you know, because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be lighthearted. You're not supposed to take it too seriously. 
I, I, I did get a kick out. I really liked the art. I thought the events happened a little quickly, but of course they have to encapsulate like, you know, the entire movie, right. you know, in, in, in one issue in one issue. So yeah, things had to move very, very quickly. The only, uh, the only serious nitpick that I had was on the last page when they show the death star blowing up, there's way too many rebel survivors flying away at the end. Cause there's, there's only what there was Luke and another X wing and Luke wedge one, and, uh, the Falcon, I think. Wasn't that it? There's one or two Y-Wings. I mm. want to say it's one. I think it's one Y-Wing, two X-Wings, one of which is Luke's, and the Falcon, I think. But I, it's been a while. I have to go back and look again. But I know it's not this fleet that's flying away at the end here. <laughs> which doesn't include the Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> Although the Falcon well, is is in the page before. Mm-hmm. It took me... It was on about the second reading of this... Because I just kind of just I went through it real fast the first time and I didn't catch who who was the guy that was ed- egging them on in the beginning of the book for the battle on the Tan of Four. And, and then I looked at it again. I'm like, wait a minute. He's got a riding crop. He's got stars. I'm like, that's freaking George C. Scott. Right. From yeah. Patton. <laughs> like, how could I miss that? I thought that was a good pull. That is very funny. Oh, I just saw another one I missed on the very fir- first page. Um one of the guys is pulling up his pants and his boxers are showing. Yeah, I, I didn't. I <laughs> was a little weird. disturbed by that. I wasn't sure what. <laughs> I guess the implication is that, that they got called out of bed or something to go fight off the stormtroopers or something. But yeah, it's it's I guess. a little bit weird. Or maybe he was on the can or something. I don't know. But yeah, it is a little bit weird. He's so, running by pulling his pants up. So, what do you think our chances are? Let's see. Uh, standard ground troop complement of Imperial class Star Destroyer is 9,700. Each carries an E 11 Blastec rifle capable of over 500 shots. We are 50 armed troopers with 20 year old equipment held together by twine adhesive and the will of force. All in all, I'd say our chances are about slim and none. <laughs> and slim, slim just made, just made the jump, jump to hyperspace. hyperspace. He's, awesome. biting, he's biting his fingernails off. <laughs> that was very funny. Did you go on and read the second one? I, I don't have the second one, but uh, oh, okay. I, I would I would like to read it now that I've read this. It's funny because it, it turns out that uh, that I actually have this issue. You know, I, I read it as a as a CBR, and then when I was reading, I was like, this this book looks really familiar to me. So I went and looked, and although I had never read it, I actually have this issue. And it's funny, the, the main reason I have never read it is, in addition to not having the next issue, I thought that this was some sort of continuation of other adventures. And it turns out, no, this is the first book. So all this time, I've been holding off reading it, thinking that I needed to jump in somewhere else to learn who these guys were or something like that. So it's been very strange, but I do definitely want to... Uh, to read the rest of them now because I got a real kick out of this. And what's funny is I, I think there's every potential that, you know, with, uh, you know, with the recent announcement about, you know, what they want to do with, uh, you know, more star Wars movies that are going to be, um, ancillary and not necessarily part of a saga or an ongoing story or something. There's every chance that if they're successful with that and the whole thing goes on long enough, we could actually get movies like this. And I think that's a neat idea, you know, that you could actually 
somewhere down the road after they've exhausted, you know, all the other characters and, you know, they've done, you know, the Boba Fett movie and the Han Solo movie and this movie and that movie that eventually you could get, you know, okay, let's get a, a, a Star Wars romp you know, for one movie kind of thing. I, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't, it, it's all about execution, you know, cause sometimes those movies are a lot of fun. And then sometimes you're, you know, you get, you know, something maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that, that pretty much covers this one. Cool. Oh, and uh, because I'm sure that we will end up getting a flood of uh, emails on the subject. If I don't point this out, I myself often have trouble with the guy that you pointed out in this, the, the Imperial that chews out Tag and Bink in that one scene. Mm-hmm. I can't ever remember which is which. I've always got to look them up to keep them straight. This isn't Tag. This is oh, Mati. Yeah, this is oh. the other one. There, there's the, the two guys in that scene that are arguing are Tag and Mati. And I, oh, Tag's the other guy that kind of clams up when Vader starts choking. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's Tag. Okay. Mati is the one that actually gets choked, and that's who it is mm. in this scene here. Also, um, I can never remember that actor's name, but he was also um, uh, Eddie Valiant's police detective friend in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, too, which is the other thing I always remember him for. His other claim to fame, as it were. The guy that plays Monty? Monty or Tag? Monty. The oh, guy that okay. gets choked by Vader. He's yeah, also yeah, yeah. Uh, Santino, that's his name, hmm. in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, the guy that gets the uh, the piano dropped on him? No, no, that's Marvin Acme. No, Santino's is his detective friend that that when uh, when Valiant goes back to his uh, you know back to his place and he falls asleep, you know, passes out after drinking. The guy mm-hmm. that comes in in the morning and takes the bottle out of his hand and then tosses it into the waste paper basket to scare the hell out of him and wake him up. That's, that's, uh, Santino. Oh, okay. I think I was thinking about when that, that, no, I was thinking about when he was a cop and there was a tune that killed his partner. That's, that's what I was thinking. Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. How do we get off on Roger? Ram- <laughs> I, don't know. I noticed that Paul is suspiciously quiet. Well, it's you, you you've, exceeded my knowledge level to be honest with you <laughs> i only know stupid things you're out of your comfort zone when we, yeah to, to an extent i mean i just enjoy this as as pure simple fun and and you know i just get a kick out of reading it i i've read the whole thing i have the uh, trade uh but i don't remember it's been a while since i read it so i don't remember the different coincidences that they hit on but i just i just kind of love the way it just goes step for step with the movies I agree. Well, if you're ready for your book, I know that I'm ready for you to be ready for your book because I'm excited about what you brought to the table tonight. But are you ready for me to be ready for you to be ready for my book? I am ready for you to be ready for me to be ready for you to be ready for your book. Oh, my head hurts now. I don't know if I can do my book. (laughs) I'm not ready for either of you to be ready for the other one to be ready to be ready for... Ah, screw it. Just read okay. the damn book. So, so the three, pe- <laughs> the three people who haven't paused their iPod during this and gone on to something else. <laughs> Hi, heroes. Fasten your seatbelts, because Mighty Marvel is about to take you to a new dimension. I brought the Frankenstein Monster number 12 from September Hell's of 1974. Yes. Ah. 
<laughs> Fire is good. Fire is our friend. Uh, Where are you going? I brought his, I was going to make espresso. I love that scene. But uh, it's got a 25-cent cover price. It's written by Doug Mensch, penciled by Val Mayrick, inked by Vinnie Coletta, the Vinnie Coletta. My favorite! Everybody's favorite. Color by Petra Goldberg, letters by John Costanza, and it's edited by Rascally Roy Thomas. The cover is by Ernie Chan and Ron Wilson, and it shows the Frankenstein monster bursting free from a giant ice cube with the caption, Frozen in ice for half a century, he comes alive today. The title of the episode is A Cold and Lasting Tomb. We open with a splash page of the Frankenstein monster stumbling along a path leading away from Castle Frankenstein. It's a really cool-looking just the artwork in this book in general is really cool looking, so I shouldn't. I'm going to say it on every page if I try and point out everything that looks good. That's perfectly all right. <laughs> We're told that the monster is dying from a chest wound after being shot by Vincent Frankenstein. Vincent was then killed by the maid, who apparently was incensed that Vincent had neglected his wife, who then died in childbirth, and she vowed that he would never see his child and shot him. The monster staggers away, expecting to die and wanting to be as far away from the castle as possible, because it's basically his hell, and he wants to get away from hell before he dies. As he moves along, he's attacked by some wolves, who are drawn to him by the scent of blood, and he disposes of them pretty quickly in a pretty gruesome manner, killing them all. And he continues to walk on. He's drawn to a mountain peak, determined to die with dignity. He reaches the peak on... Excuse me, he reaches the peak and steps forward once too often, kind of killing that whole dignity thing, causing the peak to break off, and he falls in a full-page shot. Uh, There's a full-page shot of him falling, followed by uh, a second page with three panels that show him falling from the top of the the mountain to the bottom uh, and into the icy water below. We then have a montage page showing us the passage of time, which shows us the Revolutionary War, World War One, World War Two, men landing on the moon, and then we see an oil freighter, which rams into an iceberg in Titanic-like fashion, only it doesn't sink, but it does pitch crewmen over the rail, and one of the crewmen, while he's in underwater, sees a man, uh, yeah, because that's a man and we don't know who it is, uh, frozen in a block of ice. Now, at that point, I was thinking it would be... What's that? Captain America. <laughs> well, it's it's exactly what I was going to say. At that point, I think it would be pretty cool if the Avengers submarine came along and Giant Man would just reach out a giant hand and pull him in like he did <laughs> Captain America. That should have been a what-if story. <laughs> I think that would have been a really dead <laughs> Captain America. Or what if the Avengers had found Frankenstein and yeah. Captain America? Just, yeah. just to, to totally go off my book onto a tangent for a moment. In that, episode, in that issue... Issue number four of the Avengers. They, they pull Captain America in. They recognize him as being in the costume, but they're not totally sure if it's him. So he regains consciousness. Now, here's a guy who's been frozen in ice for 20-something years. He's just woken up. What do they do to test him? Thor throws his hammer at him. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're convinced he's Captain America because he evades it. So, in other words, if he wasn't Captain America, I would have just crushed your head. <laughs> he would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Thor, you killed him. I I say thee nay. 
<laughs> just toss him back in. Don't worry. <laughs> Nobody knew he's here anyway. I say the whoops. <laughs> what man? I I say these a flesh wound. <laughs> let us not. Let us never speak of this again. <laughs> a pod penalty of death. But uh, instead of having Giant Man reach up his giant hand, the man calls for a crane, which then lifts our protagonist out of the water. They bring the frozen block to the medic's cabin, where they let it thaw in a very uncontrolled, unscientific manner. And we don't see anybody even mopping up the mess that must have been there. Uh, what, do they got the, they got the McDonald's heat lamp on them or something? <laughs> there's just a couple of minutes in the they, they show them. They show the block of ice there, then they show it with kind of less ice, then they show it with less ice, and the men are just standing around talking while this is going on. So that they, it's obviously a very controlled circumstance. They microwave them. So, so they, they come to the conclusion that he's alive and in suspended animation, and they give him a transfusion and consider electroshock stimulation. Yeah, because that's a good idea. Let's wake him up while, while we're in the high seas. Meanwhile, on the deck, the sailor that first saw Frankie is complaining that he should decide what to do with him. And they pull into New York Harbor. Two hours later, he returns with his brother, who runs a local carnival. And they knock out a guard and steal the monster. I got to think that it's a that you know it's a real wise decision on their part because you know what could possibly go wrong. At the carnival, the monster is on display in a what looks like a plexiglass tank where he's recognized by Derek McDowell, a brilliant young neurosurgeon with esoteric knowledge of the past. <clears throat> then it's it's very poorly set up for the next page. They show a fire breaking out with the heat shocking the monster to life. And into a berserk frenzy, but they never explain how the fire gets started. And, uh, you know, I'm sure nobody saw it coming that the monster would be shocked to life there. You know, it, it was just totally safe to have him there. Uh, and then they show McDougal and a doctor scheming to exploit the monster, and both of them die. But they don't really show you how. And apparently these events are occurring in the magazine Monsters Unleashed. But it's kind of a disjointed page. Anyway, the monster is now free to wander the streets of New York, and we cut to a lecture about transplants, where the lecturer is saying that the brain will forever defy surgical transplant. As he says this, we see the monster walking by outside the lecture hall in a bit of O. Henry irony. And that's where the issue ends. So basically, we, in, we could play the Shaft theme for Frankenstein. <laughs> Who is the man who's undead? in his hands. Stein! <laughs> Stein, shut your mouth. Frank Stein. Frank Stein. <laughs> I gotta know, Paul, what'd you think of this one? I loved it. Except for that one, like I said, that one disjointed sequence. Uh, this this is the opposite of, you know, and, and we've had this before, where, where you have the issues that are, uh, they, they cram so much in there. This could have easily been ten issues. Yep. There's so much going on in it. Uh, but it, it's it's just to me it's it's that yeah, this is great you know you just read it and you get so much out of the book. This is compressed storytelling where nowadays we do a lot of decompressed storytelling. Yeah, and I know. mean they they did that a lot. I mean you know I think the the classic uh, example of it is you know Superman's origin being told in three panels and <laughs> having to be have, having to be brought out in a little bit more detail over the years. Yep. But but that's you know that was the way back then they didn't they didn't 
linger on these things and you know make it a whole dialogue heavy thing if anything they made it exposition heavy and just explained it and went on to the next thing but i i, I love the art in this book in particular the, the story is is good but the art is great isn't it gorgeous and mm-hmm. it blew me away digging this out again today to look at it um you know and opening it to that credits page and seeing because i knew this was val mayeric Mm-hmm. But seeing that it was Vinnie Coletta on the inks, because I, 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 at first I thought I had the wrong issue because, um, see, I discovered this time. This is probably one of the very earliest examples of me really getting into and embracing a book that was completely out of my comfort zone. Because up till this point, you know, I was strictly, you know, Superman, Batman, you know, those kind of guys, superheroes and, you know, that sort of thing. And I don't I couldn't tell you how or why or where this uh, this issue fell in my lap. And I just, you know, from from cover to cover, I love this issue. And a lot of it, a whole lot of it has to do with the art is just gorgeous. It's it's yeah. just beautiful from start to finish. It really is. It reminds me of a kind of a combination of Mike Plug like layouts and like Gene Colan a little bit. Well, what I see in here a whole lot is Mike Plug because... Plug had done most of the early issues up to this. He he started on the book. He was the yeah. artist starting with issue one, and I'm I'm not sure what issue he left at. And then for a time, one of the Busimas came in, and was the artist for I don't know two or three issues, and then Mayerick. And this is actually Mayerick's first issue of this title. It wasn't Mayrick's first turn at Frankenstein, though. He actually he was the artist on one of those issues that's referred to on page 26. You're absolutely right that the book is, is steaming right along and really a hell of a fun read up until you get to page 26. And then it's very, very strange because on one page in four panels, it basically synopsizes three other magazines which is very strange mm-hmm. but what's funny as a kid i didn't really catch that i didn't really feel cheated or weirded out or anything you know you just kind of roll with it you know I, I just went along with the gag but uh i have spent you know the whole rest of my collecting life wanting to read the rest of the story on this, you know, with those other issues, monsters unleashed, at least in my experience is hard as hell to find inexpensively. I mean, you know, now that we live in the internet age, you can find them all over eBay and stuff, but they're expensive as hell. I've, you know, this is, this is the kind of title I love to just stumble into issues on the cheap, you know, like in a 50 cent bin or at a con for a couple of bucks or something like that. Right. And I, so far I've been very, very fortunate that I've been able to get, um, cause this title only ran 18 issues and I have all but two issues. I, I lack two issues to complete my collection, but I cherish all of them. I love this, this title. And this was the issue that I discovered, uh, this title with. And I think a lot of the reason I love this is, you know, beyond the fact that the art is just gorgeous. I really dig the story. I, I've always been a sucker for man out of time stories, that sort of thing. You know, there are very strong parallels with both Cap's origin, you know, with the Titanic, you know, with the ship running into the iceberg and all that. 
you know, the, the whole, you know, circus monster thing, which I always enjoy that, you know, sort of element. There's a lot of interesting elements, but also I like the look of the monster in this particular issue. Merrick, I don't know if he was doing it purposely or not, but you look at the, uh, it's the next to last panel on page six, the monster's face. I don't know if he's doing it purposely or not, but to me, that looks like the Christopher Lee version of the monster from Curse of Frankenstein, which is my favorite Frankenstein film. I don't know if you, either of you guys would, would have ever seen that movie. I've but it's, seen that. It is fantastic. I love that well, movie. I, I did read that they really went out of their way to not make the monster look like the Universal monster. Right. Mars Karloff, yeah. And I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Although I... I I like that look, too. I mean, I'm more of a Universal I, I, fan. Yeah. I mean, I am. Don't get me wrong. I am. But for this, I, I don't I don't think I would have dug that. I you, like I like this version. I, you know, this is much more in line with uh, with the Hammer version. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, yeah. you know, we, we've talked in the past about original artwork. I would love to own a page from this book. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, just about any one of them. I, I mean, there's really not one page in this that I think is bad. Way back when, and I think it was on Back to the Bins, if I'm not mistaken, um, Michael Bailey and I did at least one episode about, I forget what we called it, something like underappreciated artists. And I hope to God I mentioned Val Merrick, because if I didn't, I should have. And I, I know we've always intended to do more episodes on that subject, and we just haven't gotten around to them yet. But if I didn't mention him in that, I really should have, because... I dig Merrick's art a lot, and it all stems from this issue. I just I, I can't praise the art highly enough. It's so good that not even Vinnie Coletta could ruin it. I mean, <laughs> the, the art really, you know, the inks rather are really not that different from every other job that that Coletta has done. You can really now that I know to look for it, I can tell this is Coletta. But it looks fantastic. It well, really to, to be fair to marry Col- up well. To be fair to Coletta, he was not a bad artist. His problem or his what you know what his story is that he would move things along incredibly quickly. He would get mm-hmm. he'd meet the deadline no matter what that deadline was, and if it meant cutting corners and and cutting things out of a book, you know, leaving backgrounds out and that type of thing, he didn't give a shit, and that's what he would do. Right. So, so it, it was his his blessing and his curse at the same time. You know, he it made him valuable to Marvel because if they if they were looking at a deadline, they knew he would get them to meet that deadline. But on the other hand, you know, you, you're taking work of classic artists and erasing backgrounds, right? You know, which makes you know the the the, the average fan want to shoot you. So you in know, this case, it doesn't look like he did that though, because exactly. there no, is the backgrounds a lot. Are beautiful. Yeah, the backgrounds are good. And, I mean, the inks are fully fleshed out, fully realized. There's a lot of shading. There's depth. There's three-dimensionality. I mean, it it's fantastic. I mean, there are entire pages in this. Like, uh, page 22 is a great example. I look at that, and for that one page, you really have to struggle to tell that it's Vinnie Coletta. And, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I don't mean to always be ripping on the guy, but it just annoys me that, you know, I I have seen 
some books that he worked on where he worked on some truly incredible artists like uh, like Mike Netzer, you know, or back then he was known as Nasser. There was a book, I can't remember what it was now, I want to say it was a Flash story that Vinnie Coletta inked and just ruined it. I mean, Mike Nasser is one of those guys that, I, you know, I, I put him and Merrick on a very similar level. I think their art styles are very similar in that, uh, the anatomy was was much more of that realistic kind of like Neil Adams style, and they just drew dynamic figures. They they drew really really great art, and for that one issue, or that one story, I think this was in Adventure Comics right around the time that the JSA was in there, if I'm not mistaken. For that one story, Coletta inked it, and it's just you looked at it and was like. Wow, you know, for a Nasser story, this is kind of not that good. You know, I mean, it, it still mm. looked nice, but it didn't look like it should have, you know, when handled by other people. So, well, look at the page with the passage of time. Look at all the detail yeah. in each one of those panels. Was, I like the... especially the moon landing panel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but even like the World War Two one, the, the the big Hitler head in the background. <laughs> I love that because on a quick glance, it almost looks like Mount Rushmore with Hitler's head on it. it See, what, you know what I think it's supposed to be? I think there's supposed to be like an explosion and his head is kind of being formed in the smoke. Right. In the smoke, yeah. We'll, we'll look the at top... the shading on, on the, the ocean liner, I mean the uh, oil freighter. Just mm-hmm. so much of the stuff in this is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, I... is, this shows you what Vinnie Coletta could do when he wanted to. I think that top one isn't the Civil War. It's either like the Crimean War or some other European conflict. Oh, yeah. Right. It's not the Civil War. You're right. Maybe French yeah. and Indian. I don't know. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, there's no Indians. I think that's the March of the Wooden Soldiers. <laughs> it's the Nutcracker Sweet War. There you go. But uh, this has all been reprinted. The entire run of this book was reprinted in... Um, the essential, some, what was it? The essential Frankenstein or essential Frankenstein? Oh, here it is. Essential monster of Frankenstein. I bet you it's I, got that those those uh, magazine issues that you want to read. Yeah, and probably in beautiful black and white. Exactly. I have been trying like hell to track that down, but for some reason that those are really expensive on the back issue market. So I'm thinking maybe there wasn't much of a print run on them. But uh, I would love to get my hands on those because as much as that was another thing I meant to mention in this is I think the coloring is beautiful. I think the coloring really enhances the art. And in a lot of ways, and again, I don't mean this to sound like such an awful slight of Coletta, but I think in a lot of ways, maybe the coloring lends that much more to it and, and maybe does mask some of the, the few instances in here where, where Coletta does uh, do a bit of a hatchet job on the art. The like coloring. on the last, like on the last page, where the people's eyes are all screwed up. That one and um, the panel, panel uh, or excuse me, page rather, page eleven. It's like you look at page ten where the monster's falling. It's a full page splash. It's just gorgeous, so so detailed. He's but got a little bit look- of a pinhead in that shot, though. Yeah, he's got a small head compared to his body. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But you look look at page 11, and I see where it it looks like maybe some of the detail was taken out of there. Maybe a little bit. I don't don't know. It's tough to tell. Just, just, you know, I I didn't notice what you mentioned until you mentioned the eyes on the last page. If you look at the third panel, the woman who's 
as far to, furthest to the right, she looks like she's getting like a facial tick. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy behind her might be Mick Jagger. And then the guy to the left has got like a pirate eye or something. He's got, hey, <laughs> arr, arr. We're here for the optometrist thing. What is this the brain? What? Now, what's funny was, uh, you know, this this is where I discovered Val Mayerick. And he's he's always one of those guys that I'll keep an eye out for, you know, for other books. And I don't know how long it was after this that I discovered his work on um, the uh, the living mummy in supernatural thrillers mm. and not really knowing the whole timeline and, and, you know, the sequence of events and everything. And because I discovered it so much later after Frankenstein's monster, I always figured, well, that was like the next thing along for him or whatever. Looking today on uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, I was looking at the timeline of Val Mayerick, and it turns out that pretty much all this classic work that he did that I love so much was basically all being done pretty much all at the same time he was doing uh frankenstein concurrent with doing uh monsters unleashed work and concurrent with doing uh supernatural thrillers and that sort of thing so it's a lot of fun looking at these great timelines that you can get on that website and seeing you know the progression of these artists as they moved along and the different things that they that they worked on and and moved on to and uh, he was a hell of a prolific artist. I have no idea what he's doing today. I know he's still around, but he did do a lot of stuff. And, and, wow. and you know, you know what's funny is, is when I decided I wanted to do one of the Frankenstein books, I was seriously leaning towards doing one of the earlier books because I wanted to do Mike Plug mm-hmm. because I'm very fond of Mike Plug's stuff. But then I decided, you know what? Let me let me pick the issue when it comes into modern day. And I, at first, I was disappointed that it wasn't Plug until I read the book, and then I was like, you know, I'm really glad I picked this one because the artwork is just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Well, keep definitely keep that in mind because this past um, Halloween, I had wanted to do some sort of, you know, I don't, I didn't know what show it was going to be, Back to the Bins or something, but I wanted to do some sort of special for Halloween covering some of the the horror stuff that i had really enjoyed because again i'm i'm not much of a horror person but the stuff that that i have read and that i've collected i've really dug and you know especially the two probably the two biggest ones that i've really got into was uh you know this title and uh the living mummy and uh, supernatural thrillers and, and it's because so much of it was done by the same artist. It has a very you know uniform look, and I, I really love how dynamic it is. And of course, you know I always enjoyed uh, Tomb of Dracula too, but that was always a spotty read for me as a kid because I had trouble tracking down issues. I'm still trying to collect that whole series so I can sit and, and finally get to read the thing from start to finish. One, that's one of those goals. Hopefully, one of these days I'll be able to do that. But that one was, you know, I enjoyed that title, but. You know, it, it was it was it was kind of spotty for me, you know, whereas it wasn't a consistent, like always an awesome read. I liked the Frankenstein monster book because it was a pretty consistent read. It, it told, you know, a consistent ongoing narrative in it. And I just I liked where it was going. I liked that they made they basically played out, you know, the original origin and the in the old timey stuff with him and then 
when they kind of felt that that was played out with this issue, suddenly they decided to bring, well, let's bring him into modern day and let him run loose and see what we can do with him. And I get a kick out of that. So this issue was a lot of fun because you get the best of both worlds in the issue. You, know, you get the old timey stuff with Castle Frankenstein and all that. And then, you, you know, you fast forward to modern day and the creatures on a rampage. I, I think that's great. I, I love it. And then there's, a, there's an interesting thought in that, uh, in the letters page, there's a letter that says, Dear Marvel, cast my vote as definitely in favor of keeping the monster in the 1880s time period, <laughs> if for no other reason than to prevent a Spider-Man monster team-up. Blech. The closest I want to come to that is in a bad nightmare. Merry Christmas, signed Ralph Macchio, 188 ah! Wilson Drive, Cresco, New Jersey. So now I assume it is Ralph Macchio, the comic writer, and not Ralph Macchio of My Cousin Vinny fame, or Karate <laughs> Kid fame. But uh, I just thought that was kind of cool. And what's interesting is also, once they brought him into the present day, they did eventually do a Spider-Man monster team-up in Marvel Team-Up. Marvel Team-Up, yeah. I was just looking that up to see, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what issue that Around was. Around 45 or so? Mm-hmm. I want to say Merrick drew that, too, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm. Let's see if I can find that here real quick. Ah, for some reason, oh no, no wonder I'm looking under. You know, the letter before that talks about uh, what you're saying about Scott, how the the look of the monster, and the the letter before that says, "Dear Marvel, I enjoyed the Frankenstein monster very much, but you're coloring the monster incorrectly." Read this description of him given by Mary Shelley in her novel. His yellow skin, scarcely covering the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was lustrous black, etc., etc., etc. Well, what they respond with is, we were aware of the discrepancies, Ed, between our version of the monster and Mary Shelley's. We chose to color him differently at the outset because we felt our way might be better suited to the comic book medium. A yellow tint to the monster's skin, for example, might tend to give him an oriental look in a comic book, so we chose a pallid gray-white combination instead. So... So that, that kind of explains his, uh, you know, maybe this slightly different look. Although he does have a physical different look that is close. Hello? Yeah, I'm still, still there. Here. Okay. <laughs> you, you cut out, though. Yeah, you cut out for just a second there. That was weird. Oh, okay. Well, that happened last time as we went on. That was strange. I thought the call dropped for a second there. Yeah, so yeah, it was. Marvel Team-Up number 36. Yes, and it is drawn by Sal Buscema. Yeah. And inked mm. by Vinny Coletta. <laughs> so I wonder, I wonder if they met again at some point, because I, I was sure that there was a, a meeting between him and Spider-Man that was by Mayrick, but I, I guess I'm wrong. That's the only meeting I know of, but with as many issues as they've had, maybe there's one that I'm not aware of. I see what's cool is then in the next issue, Marvel Team-Up number 37, he teamed up with a different character, but it was a continuation and kind of a wrap-up of the story with uh, Frankenstein's monster in 36. So he's actually touted on the cover. It says, Action of Plenty and the Frankenstein monster too. Who did Spidey team up with in that? Man-Wolf. One of, another one of my favorite Marvel horror characters. Because way back when, I, I can't remember what episode it was, I was raving about a, a, a title that I used to love. And I kept 
saying the name of the title wrong. I, through, when I listened back to it, I was like, oh my God, through the entire episode, I said the wrong name. It was uh, Creatures on the Loose. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying it was Creatures on the Prowl, which I don't even know if there was such a title as Creatures on the Prowl. I believe, I think it was Monsters on the Prowl. Monsters, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, Creatures on the Prowl, or on the Loose, rather, um, with uh, Manwolf was awesome. Some yes. early uh, Perez stuff, and I, I really got a kick out of that. So did you guys read the the Steve Ditko story at the end with the first appearance of Harry Potter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that one was just better left out, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> I have read it before. I don't I didn't reread it today, but I have read it before. I think that's actually a reprint. Yeah, oh yeah, that's something. that's yeah. like a nineteen fifties Yeah. You know, that, before that guy the really code. That guy really knows how to ride a stick though. <laughs> You've been waiting all day to say that, haven't you? <laughs> no, I just saw this tonight. As I was going through, I was like, oh, look at that. He looks like Peter Parker dressed as a pilgrim riding a, br- a broomstick with, with no straws on the end of it. Yeah, that's that's not right. Well, you know, I guess you give credit for the fact that they told the whole story in three pages, the first of which is a splash page. Mm-hmm. This is very true. So, you know, give some credit for that. Oh, and I, and I think the guy's name is Ben, so then maybe that's young Uncle Ben. <laughs> it's funny, a lot of these characters look like Spider-Man characters now that I look at them. Well, it would be Ditko. Yeah, that's funny. J. Oh, Jonah Jameson could be the uh, town mayor or something. <laughs> there are some great ads in this book, too. You got... Uh... Oh, where was it? Yeah, here it is. Between... Pages three and four, you've got Big Jim's Kung Fu and Sports Action Sweepstakes. Do you guys remember Big Jim figures? No, I don't. <laughs> I do. I remember these guys. They had karate chop action. <laughs> yeah, I do remember these guys. I don't think I ever owned one, but I do remember them. They were kind of like a... I, I think they were kind of a ripoff of... Uh, of G.I. Joe from around that same time when they had like G.I. Joe with like Kung Fu grip, Kung Fu grip, and all that sort of thing. Kung Fu was a big deal at this time because there's also a house ad in here for giant size Master of Kung Fu. Well, this would this would have been right in the in the Bruce Lee era. Yeah. So you know everybody would have been just kind of interested in this new form of you know action. Giant size Gonad the Barbarian. There was another one in here too. Where the heck was? It? Oh, here it is. Uh, Marvel, the yeah, the bullpen bulletins page. You got the Planet of the Apes house ad. That's awesome. That's for the magazine too. I've been reading that recently. Well, I say recently. I I, I petered out recently, but I was reading my way through Marvel's uh, Planet of the Apes magazine not long ago, and I made it to within like the last three or four issues. And sad to say. The, the story and the art got so bad that I, I just I couldn't hang with it any longer. But for a time, I was having a ball with it. It was a lot of fun. But, man, is that some wacky shit, man. <laughs> Did you guys ever read any of that? Yeah, I, I read some of it recently. You know, you, you kind of got me on the idea to start reading it. And I started reading, I, I guess I probably read about the first six or seven issues. And it was, it was keeping me along. And then, you know, so... Uh, butterfly must have gone by and distracted me or something. <laughs> Did you get to the part where they had the apes 
that we're living in a society that was like modeled after like Davy Crockett or something. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this all about? It was bizarre because they were apes. You know, they were chimpanzees like like Cornelius and Zira. Yet they were literally dressed in buckskins with a Davy Crockett coonskin cap riding down like river rafts like like Huckleberry Finn or something. And I was like, this has got to be one of the strangest stories I've ever read. And the and the apes had like hillbilly southern accents and really goofy hillbilly names and stuff. It it was really trippy shit. But so when when you consider that, you know, it's supposed to be the Earth, you know, in the future, you could understand where a, a, a an era like that might be aped. No, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> by by a later society. Ap Crockett. Ap Crockett. <laughs> I can't it's, remember what his name was, but it was something stupid. It's but it's it's less far fetched than you know. Captain Kirk going through space and just coming across a uh, planet that, you know, has the, uh, you know, the Roman the Romans. Yeah. <laughs> or that, you know, some captain could land his ship on, on a planet and tell everybody, hey, you know what we should do? We should cre- recreate the Nazis of World War II with your entire <laughs> society. So, you know, it's like, come on. Oh, that was the Zeons. They weren't Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you got a point. But I'm glad you brought this book tonight because I dug it. This was a nice walk down memory lane. Well, this is my effort to not only to come up with something good, but to come, you know, to, to not always go with your traditional Marvel superhero book, you know? Mm-hmm. Try and try and vary things once in a while. Good choice, sir. He's trying to find things to keep you around and make you want to come to the show. <laughs> oh, you don't have to try very hard for that. I love doing this show. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.